guys, welcome back to Autastic Comedians Guide to Autism. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Kirk Smith. And I'm Graham Kay, coming to you from Brooklyn, quarantined in Brooklyn. Boom. That is Kirk Smith. He is quarantined in Florida. Uh, Kirk has an autistic son. I have an autistic brother. Now, a little bit of uh, insider info, as uh, some of you already know. Kirk has coronavirus, and how long have you had a fever now, Kirk? 21 days, and it's driving me bananas. I don't know if you can I'm see so sorry. on the thing, but I'm sweaty again, and I have a headache. Still, and, you look handsome. Oh, thanks. I'm going to be a very handsome corpse. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't say that. You, look, you are Jokes, looking better. Jokes. You're looking much better than last week when you were on your side. You could barely say, you could barely do anything. We weren't even going to have you on the podcast, but you were like, I can do three minutes. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> and then I think it took you like two weeks to recover, but you look much better. You look much better now. This You're is, sitting up. This is the peak of my day. I just woke up and mm-hmm. I'm going to be, I'm going to have good, quote unquote, good energy for about three hours. And then I'm going to be wiped out and go back, take a nap. Right. Well, baby steps. Three hours is good. I'm glad that uh, we can talk to you for that long. I'm glad you are committed to the Autastic Podcast and the movement of autism awareness. The good news is, Kirk, we don't have to talk too much today. I was going to say, what are we going to talk, five minutes? (laughs) Yeah. We don't don't have too much talking to do today because luckily... uh, Or the next episode. uh, This is a two-part... This is a two-part episode... Uh, the wonderful roving reporter Jill Escher uh, was uh, g- great enough, courteous enough uh, we were f- uh, to send us a really good interview. It's a very dense interview, and uh, but, but a very interesting, informative interview with a lot of information. And it is probably more pertinent towards those of you listening who have a loved one on the lower end of yeah. the spectrum, less functioning, like your son, Kirk. Um, so anyway, uh, what, what's, what's about to happen is Jill Escher is uh, doing a longer interview uh, with Lee Wachtel, MD. She's a medical director at the Neurobehavioral Unit at Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. Is that right, Kirk? Yeah, this is a two-parter, right? That's right. It's a two-parter, and we, it's a, about a 40-minute interview, so we're going to break it up in two parts. This is part one. And uh, do you have anything to add before we uh, throw to the Let's roll it. interview? Yeah, you are tired. Let's roll it. <laughs> Hey, everybody. It's Jill Escher, roving reporter for the Autastic Podcast in my own lockdown here in Northern California. And while I'm in my lockdown, I'm talking to somebody else in her lockdown in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Dr. Lee Wachtel. Hello, Dr. Wachtel. Hello. Happy to be here today. We are really lucky to have you here on the Autastic Podcast. Dr. Wachtel is the medical director of the Neurobehavioral Unit at Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, Dr. Wachtel, can you tell us a little bit about Kennedy Krieger? I think a lot of us who have 
um, kids or adults with severe autism know what KKI is, but a lot of people don't. Can you give a little background? Yeah, sure. Um, so Kennedy Krieger Institute here in Baltimore was actually um, the first facility in the United States to be um, characterized as a university, a university affiliated center for excellence in developmental disabilities. Um, as many people know, um, every state um, has at least one such center. Um, some states have more than one. And that was actually an initiative that um, stems all the way back to the um, Kennedy administration when it was felt that um, services for individuals across the lifespan in academic settings with teaching and research and excellence in clinical care really were lacking and needed to be developed across the U.S. So Kennedy was kind of the model or the first one. Um, Kennedy Krieger currently is um, a pretty big facility that spans five different inpatient units as well as um, four different school settings and um, hundreds of different outpatient clinic settings. And in general, Kennedy Krieger um, is really in the service of um, any child, adolescent, um, and we do have a number of adults who continue with us throughout the life, throughout their lifespan um, with any disorder of the central nervous system. So that could range from anything from Down, Down syndrome to spina bifida to autism to ragged red fiber disease to a spinal cord injury, um, really the whole gamut from things that are more common to things that are um, quite unusual that maybe even a couple of dozen people in the world um, might have. And um, so Kennedy Kruger is really um, dedicated in terms of meeting the needs of those youth and their families. And I'm also following, I guess, um, what's always been um, their motto that every child is born with a certain potential and has the right to reach that potential. And recognizing that a lot of our children, a lot of our families do face like significant challenges. Our goal is to help um, every child and his family um, overcome those as much as possible. Um, I'm actually a child psychiatrist and um, I'm the medical director of the neurobehavioral unit, which is one of our five inpatient programs. And the neurobehavioral unit is an inpatient floor. We have 16 beds and we admit children, adolescents and young adults with autism and intellectual disability, not for their autism or intellectual disability, but for severe challenging behaviors. So um, we work with um, youth who have um, very severe behavioral and psychiatric presentations, um, typically individuals who have failed many other types of treatment options in outpatient, in residentials, in um, inpatient settings, usually um, kids and families who somewhat reach like the end of the train line and come to us for um, what we think is our, I guess our, our, our neurobehavioral approach uh, that's largely the marriage between psychiatry and applied behavioral analysis um, really as the core disciplines, but then with um, significant input as well from medicine, social work, speech and language, education. So it's really a multidisciplinary model to look at all the different facets of a child presentation and help him again reach his potential with our goal being largely um, getting the behavioral and psychiatric presentation under control. Right and the people I know who have had inpatient um, experiences at KKI um, have children or, or young adults uh, with aggressive behavior, self-injurious behaviors, um, you know, a history of, of, of violent outbursts and episodes where they, they couldn't be controlled at all at home in school or other settings. 
So as you said, at the end of the line, I mean, when people are very desperate for help, they, they go to you. And then when they go to you, they often, I know, hit a wait list um, because there aren't uh, enough facilities like yours, as, as I understand it, um, to handle the, the population. But um, let's get into this. So the, the questions um, that I've been getting um, from parents have largely revolved around various crises they've been suffering um, during the pandemic in that um, their child is cooped up at home, their child has lost their services, usually has lost school services. Um, very few of the people that I've been in touch with at least have been able to really benefit from remote learning. Um, they've lost, of course, all their recreational services, all the usual things that they do during the day, like, you know, if they go to their favorite restaurant or if they go to their favorite bowling alley or their favorite swimming pool or whatever it is, um, you know, their special Olympics, you know, gathering, everything's canceled. And so, um, you know, all, like all of us, our lives have become quite a bit smaller, but for our kids, a lot of them are experiencing a tremendous amount of frustration and anxiety and the parents who often now have to work from home while caring for a disabled kid are also suffering from their own levels of stress. Um, so um, a lot of people are very interested in the topic of medication and in no way am I disparaging other approaches, um, other therapies that may be more behavioral in nature. And you mentioned some of the others that you rely on at KKI. But I think today we only have a certain amount of time. So let, let's talk about medications, if you will. And I do wanna say, it's very important, I think everybody knows this, but Autastic does not give medical advice. Nobody, you, me, Kirk, Graham, nobody gives medical advice on this podcast. Um, but today we'll talk generally about um, medications that you might wanna talk about with your own clinicians who, who know your child's um, uh, you know, medical histories and, and know him or her personally. So um, with that in mind, um, I'm gonna start off talking about, um, uh, you know, let's say you have um, a, a teenager who hasn't been on medications before, but is really having a hard time at home and is looking for something, and the parents are looking for something short-term just to help calm his anxiety, just to, uh, mellow him out um, because he's been more, he's become increasingly aggressive and um, self-injurious over this period. What are the kinds of things you would be thinking about in that situation? Sure. No, I think that's a great question. And I think something that's really worth taking into consideration now, um, even when usually you might prefer other options than medication, there's definitely a role um, for looking at medication, even in terms of what we sometimes refer to as like providing additional glue or helping to lengthen somebody's fuse um, in the um, in the interest of everybody doing better um, during this challenging time. Um, I think First of all, when you're considering um, medications, particularly in somebody with autism and or other um, developmental disability, it's really important to review um, with your with your provider um, the child's medical history um, to make sure that there are not any other um, outstanding medical issues that you really need to take into consideration in terms of other side effects and problems. Um, or interactions with other medications that a child might take. Many of our patients are on anticonvulsants for seizures or various other medications, depending on medical comorbidities. So I'd say that would be one of the first things um, to um, outline to your provider before talking about medication options. Um, in terms of trying to just sort of tone things down a couple of notches or um, lengthen someone's fuse, 
we often look at kind of two different classes of medications, maybe three. Um, and those would probably be um, alpha agonists, antipsychotics, the newer ones, atypical antipsychotics or um, benzodiazepines. So I could talk about like each of those three considerations. Sure. Um, although I would also say when you're thinking about um, kind of lengthening someone's views, um, if you will, and talking about what a child may already be taking, in terms of medication for other um, issues. Um, there is also a role in terms of looking at optimization of medication that a child might already be on, particularly if those are psychoactive medications like anticonvulsants that also may have an element of mood stabilization. Um, we always try and be kind of parsimonious with medications and um, definitely worth looking if somebody is already on something and that medication could be optimized like a Depakote dosage that's needed for seizure control could be pushed a little bit more to get a little bit of additional behavioral control. Same for something like Tegretol or Lamotrigine. Um, that might be a first thing to look at um, before you look at adding something new. So optimizing what already has to be there so you can be parsimonious with meds. Um, but then after that, so um, one of the classes we like to use a lot are the alpha agonists. And um, those include um, clonidine, and guanfacine, which um, can, um, can be purchased in both immediate and long-acting forms, otherwise known as um, CAPFE or um, Intunif. And um, one of the reasons that we really like the um, alpha agonists, which are used in general psychiatry as like a second-line agent for ADHD, they don't help so much with the attention part of ADHD um, in as much as helping with the kind of hyperactivity and the like just sort of the motor agitation and um, irritability component is because um, those agents um, are pretty well tolerated. Um, the main side effect of being on an alpha agonist since they um, do act on your blood pressure is that blood pressure can go down. Um, but that's also something that is relatively easy these days to um, monitor at home. Um, even with one of these devices you can get from Amazon for like 30 bucks that uses a little laser type thing around your wrist to monitor things like that. And um, Generally, those medications don't really have a lot of other side effects that we have to worry about, um, like when we'll talk about antipsychotics or benzodiazepines. And um, both guanfacine and clonidine um, can do a really nice job in patients in terms of just sort of bringing things down a couple of notches so that they're not quite as hyperactive, not quite as agitated, not quite as active. Um, it may not be what you'd want in normal times when you'd like your child to be running around outside and really fully engaged in everything but can serve a lot of benefit now. And um, additionally, those medications help a lot with sleep. They're also used um, generally in child psychiatry um, for sleep. And I think that that's something um, that um, a lot of people are struggling with now. And so if you use one of those medications, you might even be able to like uh, hit like two birds with one stone in terms of both help during the day with bringing things down a couple of notches and also enhancing sleep. And um, I think those types of medications are pretty easy to start at home. Um, even if you're not able to monitor like blood pressure, using a blood pressure cuff or using one of those other um, little new fangled devices, um, generally a child is fine if they're up and moving around and, and um, you know, you know if someone's blood pressure is too low and they stand up and then they start to keel over. So um, oftentimes it's pretty safe to try those medications at home and even like titrate them upwards um, looking for response. Um, if you're really concerned about excessive sedation, guanfacine is less sedating than clonidine, um, but 
you lots of people will go for clonidine first because of that excessive the extra sedating effect that can help a lot with sleep and um you know and as much as like we you know maybe don't want our kids like sleeping so much usually having good sleep especially during this time is beneficial to everybody across the board and i think you know it's really okay for parents to recognize that they need like a break too and getting their kid to go to sleep like makes a big difference not only for the kid but also also for the parents and just for everybody's functioning so um so yeah, so I like like alpha agonists a lot. And another thing that's um, pretty good about them is that neither clonidine nor guanfacine have a lot of interactions with other psychotropic medications or um, anticonvulsants. So that would be one class. Um, you know, so I'll jump to like benzodiazepines, which um, you know, oftentimes we'll use benzos for, you know, a child needs to go like on an airplane or has to go and have like a dental procedure. It'll commonly be prescribed for kids with autism and typically developing kids as well for that purpose. Um, and it's definitely something that's worth a try. One issue that we run in with run into with benzodiazepines is that some of some children, and particularly our types of kids, tend to um, be particularly sensitive to those medications and you may get the opposite reaction. So you may get a child who is more disinhibited, more activated, and more agitated. Now, the good thing about benzos is if that happens, well, I mean, the effect of the medication will be out of the system in like a couple of hours. So that'd be like a cautionary thing to think about with a benzodiazepine. But on the other hand, some children do respond very nicely to benzodiazepines. We use benzodiazepines a lot as like a one-time intervention. Many times when children are, you know, particularly out of behavioral control and we need to get like some traction on the situation just to bring things down a notch. And I think that that's a very reasonable option to consider, um, particularly if you're dealing with a child where the stakes are even a little bit higher than just being like hyperactive and agitated and running all over the house. Um, if you're dealing with somebody who's having significant behavioral outbursts where self-injury may become you know, a significant risk or aggression towards other people because now is really not the time to go to the emergency room with like contusions or concern for having concussion or somebody getting their finger bitten off. Um, exactly. Trialing the pain would be um, definitely um, a worthwhile option. Again, something to talk about. I'm sorry, um, what would with be a worthwhile option? What was it? Oh, I'm sorry. Benzodiazepine, um, lorazepam. So we'll often use lorazepam or alprazolam as medications that have a more rapid onset of effect in terms of benzodiazepines as compared to clonazepam is also a benzodiazepine but with a longer um, duration of effect. And sometimes if patients need to be on a benzodiazepine long standing and benefit from that, we might use something like clonazepam, um, which is sold as clonopin um, because it only needs to be dosed twice a day. But if you're looking for a medication with more rapid effect, onset of effect in terms of benzos, then you'd be looking more likely at lorazepam sold as Ativan or um, alprazolam sold as Xanax. And um, yeah, so I think those are really, those are um, definitely- My son is, uh, was prescribed um, hydroxyzine, which is I think another benzo um, diazepine. And I, I think that some of the concern people have with the benzodiazepines is uh, people can become habituated to them. Isn't that correct? Well, yeah, that is a consideration. And just to clarify, so like hydroxyzine would fall in the class of um, like Benadryl and other agents that are typically marketed for um, allergy symptoms that act more on like uh, cholinergic and antihistaminergic um, systems oh. in the body. So it's actually 
of benzodiazepine is a different class of medication. Ah, but okay, what do I know? <laughs> All right, <laughs> just clarify. But you're you're absolutely right. Those are often given, and um, interestingly, um, those types of medications also sometimes have those paradoxical effects that you give the child a, a hydroxyzine or Benadryl, and you think that they get kind of sleepy, but they might actually have the opposite effect, which is why if you want to use it on a transatlantic flight, you should always do a dry run in advance. Um, yeah, but, so the Ativan, for example, is something that you might use when the kid is experiencing high anxiety and you're trying to avoid a meltdown, right? Something, but it's not something you would necessarily use every day where it would become um you know something that he would become habituated to um well i'd say it can go either way so um i mean typically we try and not have patients on long-standing benzodiazepines except in certain cases so some patients have a benzodiazepine as part of their anti-epileptic regimen we definitely see a number of patients with um, catatonic symptoms who benefit from long-term benzodiazepine usage and some people do actually, um, outside of those categories, really benefit from benzodiazepines. And I think it's important to kind of look at benzos and the issues of benzo dependence in context. So everybody sort of shies away from benzos because of the fact that they, the, so you can become addicted to the benzodiazepine. And what's particularly problematic about that is the fact that benzodiazepines have a, a resale value you know, where I work in downtown Baltimore, you could definitely fill your prescription and sell it outside. Um, that's not a great thing. Um, you can purchase benzos on like the black market. Um, benzos don't mix very well with alcohol. Um, benzos taken in overdose, particularly if you're drinking as well, that could be a, a fatal situation. Um, so for other reasons, like would I want to give a typically developing 18 year old who likes to party with his friends a benzodiazepine prescription? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> would I want to give or I thought that they were going to divert it or give it to their friends? Absolutely not. But usually those types of circumstances are really mitigated with our um, patient population. Um, so we're not dealing with issues of somebody selling it or the child self-administering or drinking or sharing it with his friends, selling it at school. Um, so a lot of those issues become like less important. And then you really get back to the idea that, yeah, your body can develop like a chemical dependence to those types of medications. Um, typically what we've seen in our patient population is that as compared to people who abuse those medications, they don't typically need more and more and more in the same way as somebody who's just using it like as a medication of abuse to like escape from reality or just to like veg and chill out like they would be smoking something else in the street. So I think that we don't see that same degree of dependence and we definitely get, a, get away from a lot of the dangers associated with benzodiazepines. And so if you need to be on a benzodiazepine like long-term, it's actually not the worst thing in the world. I have many patients who've been on benzodiazepines long-term. But if you are using one more like to get through a rough period, and we also see that situation, like a child who say is recovering from surgery and you know was not able to really understand like what needs to happen and necessary medical procedures and needs to be a little bit like chilled out, um, that's okay. And the it comes with benzodiazepines is then they, they just need to be weaned. So discontinuing the medication, you can't do it all at once um, because withdrawal from benzodiazepine could be dangerous, but it becomes like a weaning problem. Process, which is very safe and under like medical direction, really something that can be readily accomplished. And we're back. Um, 
yeah, I, I thought, like like I said, it was a, a lot of information, pretty dense, um, and uh, it, but uh, but very interesting, very informative, very informative. If you were like me, you had to press rewind the the back button a couple times to to sort of really <laughs> get what they were what they were talking about. We like like Kirk and I like to say we are not scientists, so no, no, no. we are not. No, I don't even own a butcher's coat. Yeah, so. no, yeah. So, uh, what did you... I'll tell you what my thoughts on this after we play the second half. So, this is a two-parter. Uh, as you long-time listeners know, my son is on antipsychotics, low dose, for, as a mood stabilizer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll talk about that at the end. Yeah, sounds good. And uh, if you like the podcast, please uh, rate and review, as always. That really helps us. You can go to patreon.com slash autastic to be a, be a, just donate, uh, help us keep doing this. Of course, it is trying times for everybody. Uh, if you uh, have lost your job like we have, uh, <laughs> don't, don't, do not feel obliged to donate. Uh, we appreciate no. your listening and spreading the good word. And uh, as always, you can find me at Mr. Graham K on Twitter or at Instagram K on Instagram. I'm also uh, very findable on Facebook. Shoot me a message. And uh, Kirk Smith Comedy on all platforms because he's the man with synergy. <laughs> synergy and a fever. That was my two <laughs> <phone> friends. <laughs> That's your diagnosis. <laughs> well, Kirk, did we do it? Uh. We did it, guys. Guys, have a great week. You can do it.